All right. Our passage today is from Galatians 4. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. All right. Well, welcome again. That was so much fun. Thank you to all the the families and friends who are here and the parents that are dedicating children. It's an absolute joy to do this with you. Uh, We have been studying for the last two months the New Testament book of Galatians. And we've really just been looking at a few big themes from this book. So the grace of God, our relationship to the law and obedience, the unity that we have between groups of people in the church. And then at the end of chapter three last week, we were introduced to a new theme that we are children of God, that all who believe in Jesus are made children of God. And this week is a continuation of that theme by looking specifically at the process of adoption how and why God makes us his own sons and daughters. And now my, my heart for us as a congregation and the heart of all of our leaders is that we would, we would embrace this reality, that we would embrace this truth, that we as, as leaders and servants would come to, to equip you and, and serve you in such a way that you can, you can embrace and experience your role as a child of God. So I, I came to faith as as a young child, I had a, a really powerful encounter with the Lord at about 16. And so for the last two plus decades, I've been walking deeply with the Lord, not perfectly at all, but, but deeply with the Lord. And yet it's, it's only been in the last few years, I think, that, that God's love for me as his own child has really begun to wash over me. I mean, only, only through passages like this one have I begun to, to change the way I, I think and the way I feel and the way I move through life, not just as a, as a servant of God or a, a soldier of God or a law-abiding citizen, but rather as, as simply a child of God. And of all the places in Galatians, you know, I said a few weeks ago that sort of the theological center of Galatians, I think, is chapter 2, verse 20. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. You picture the, the author, Paul, like standing on top of a mountain with a like, cape blowing in the wind. This strong statement. But my personal favorite passage is this one. And my favorite verse is chapter 4, verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his sons into your heart, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. I mean, for me, this is, this is it in all of Galatians. And so I want to pray this morning that the Lord will, will meet us in this space. We've, we've gathered for worship. We've, we've heard God's word read over us. We've sang together. We've done liturgy together. We've dedicated these children. So I want to ask that, that God's word would not just enter our minds, but it would, it would sink into our hearts. 
and that our, our lives would be changed. I really think this is the type of message in the scriptures that will absolutely change our, our lives and hearts if we let it. And so, Father, you are, are so, so good to us. And we, we come before you now, and in whatever place we're in, we come with our, our busy thoughts, our anxious hearts. We come with all the distractions that come with just being human. Most of all, we come with the, the struggles to, to really know and believe that we are your children, that we are beloved, that we can live in this love. Lord, I know for some, this is not an easy topic that, that the mere mention of, of fatherhood or, or, or parents can, can conjure up images and, and, and feelings deep within us of, of fear and of rejection and, and abuse. And so, Father, into those people, I pray that you would speak a word of peace and show yourself to be the true and better father. For others, they, they perhaps watch these children being dedicated and they themselves long to have their own children but have not been able to yet. And so into the deep pain there, I pray that you would speak your comfort and just welcome them in your own embrace as their father. Many of us also are just sort of floating today, just moving through life. We're, we're here, we're fine, but we've got a hundred other things on our hearts and minds. And so... Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would make these truths come alive today. Would you breathe life into dry bones? Would you pour living water onto dry ground? Heal us, renew us, and bless us with your presence, Lord. Amen. All right, so three things that I think this passage does for us, contributes to to our lives, our understanding of what it is we believe. And the three things are a new exodus, a gracious adoption, and a life of belovedness. So a new exodus, a gracious adoption, and a life of belovedness. The first thing is very short. It's that, that this passage shows us a, a new exodus. And we've been picking up these, these Old Testament vibes all throughout the book of Galatians. Most of them have been, been centered on Abraham and the promise of, of Genesis 15. We've heard a lot about the law of Moses. But now the author, Paul, is going to take us directly to the, the high point of the Old Testament, which is the Exodus. God freeing his people from slavery and oppression in Egypt many years ago. And one scholar, N.T. Wright, has written that Paul has effectively drawn his entire theology into a single short story in these verses. And with this, he has launched the entire project of Christian theology from that day to this. Now, preachers and scholars are like masters of overstatement. I get that. You're like, every passage is the most important passage ever. You know, that's essentially what he's saying. But, but the reason why he's saying it and why I actually agree with it that's because these verses tell the story of a second and even more marvelous exodus. So verse 3 says, So also when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of this world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And so Paul is drawing these intentional parallels between the first and the second exodus. In the first exodus, God's people were enslaved in Egypt. In the second exodus, we were enslaved under the spiritual forces of this world, which are Satan, sin, and death, the way Paul describes them in other places. 
In the first exodus, God's people were under this oppressive ruler of Pharaoh. In the second exodus, we are under the oppressive ruler of the law. Even though it's good, it cannot save us. It can only show us our need of salvation. In the first exodus, God's people are set free through a miraculous intervention of God. In the second exodus, we are likewise saved by God's unexpected and unbelievable power. And then in both, the first and second exodus, we're called sons of God. God comes to dwell among us. In both exoduses, we are redeemed and we journey towards this full inheritance, a promised land of freedom and abundance and everything that's good. In both exoduses, God reveals himself in a fresh and new and powerful way. He's unveiling his character and his mercy. And and the fresh and new and powerful thing that God is unveiling about himself in our passage is that he is our father. And so that's the second thing, that we have received a gracious adoption. It says, God sent his son, verse 5, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. And so in the first Exodus, the the big revelation, if you remember all the way back to Exodus 3, if you know the story, the revelation was God's name. It was God saying, I am who I am. It's the first time in the scriptures we hear the name of God. But in this second Exodus, the big, fresh, powerful revelation, it's not God's name, it's God's heart. Over and over, the scriptures connect adoption and sonship to the heart of God, including that passage we read just moments ago from 1 John 3, that we are children of God. And so adoption is one of the most beautiful, the most important elements of what we believe as Christians, this central message of Christianity, the gospel. Adoption sort of reveals God's heart and unlocks the scriptures for us in a way that almost nothing else can. And spiritual adoption is simply the truth that God makes us his own sons and daughters when he saves us through the work of his son, Jesus. Now, he didn't have to make us his sons and daughters, right? It would have been enough for him just to to save us from the spiritual enslavement that we were in. It would have been enough for us to just be citizens or, or, you know, members of his his kingdom, people that are, are, are told to fall in line. Like that would still be enough. It would still be following God in his kingdom and in his ways. And yet God doesn't need slaves. God doesn't need servants. God doesn't need citizens. He doesn't need anything. What he's saying is that there's something he wants, and he wants children. So when he looks at you, he wants somebody who's not not the perfect citizen, not the, the marching soldier. He wants a son or a daughter. One of my all time favorite theologians, J.I. Packer, he says some really big things about spiritual adoption. He says that the essence of all New Testament teaching is a revelation of the fatherhood of God. That everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. And then lastly, he says, it's, it's such a big deal that he, he says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. 
and of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayer and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not yet understand Christianity very well at all. And so as I've said in this series a couple of times, the gospel, the way Christ saves us, that central message, it's both radically objective and radically subjective. It's objective in the sense that it's based on a real historical event, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's objective in the sense that there are are key doctrines of our faith that we believe. We don't come up with them, but we receive them from the very voice of God in the Scriptures. I love the objectiveness of Christianity. But there's also a, a radical subjectivity to our faith. Not subjective in that it's whatever we want it to be, but rather that it's deeply personal and each of us will experience it in a little bit different way. This is maybe nowhere more true than on the topic of adoption. God has adopted all who believe in Jesus. It's, it's a done deal. Whether we, whether we feel it and experience it or not, we are children of God and that's a definitive truth. It's a fact. And yet it's one of the most powerful things for us really to lay hold of personally and spiritually. There's obviously no better uh, illustration of this than adoption in the way that we do it in our culture. Now, many of you have adopted your children. Some of you are in the process of adoption. And so you understand how this works, and there's an objective and a subjective part to it. My little sister, Sarah, she and her husband, Drew, they adopted their oldest son, Anthony, And so Anthony was born into a difficult situation in another part of town. And Drew and Sarah, they had to do all of this paperwork, all of these home studies. They had to to pay a lot of money and go through this, this entire process. And then finally, they received Anthony as a foster child. So years go by, there's more home studies, there's more applications, there's more money being, you know, being given. And then finally, on a single day, in a single moment, The judge brings down the gavel and smacks it, and it's official. Anthony belongs to them. I mean, it's it's a real, it's it's a legal forever kind of decision. It's objective. And yet in that moment there, I mean, if you've ever been to an adoption, you know, ceremony, even if it's like in a courthouse or on Zoom, which a lot of them have been the last few years, like there are no dry eyes in the place. This was a child who didn't have a home, and now they do. A child who didn't have a father now does. A child who didn't have a mother now does. I mean, it is a powerful, powerful moment. And this is such a good picture for us of the gospel. Actually, human adoption is pointing us to spiritual adoption and not the other way around. And Paul is layering all these illustrations to help us feel the impact that you were a slave just like Israel and Egypt, but now you've been redeemed and set free. You were an orphan, you were homeless, and now you have been brought near by the Father God. And so this morning, what we need to hear is that welcoming embrace of the Father that God put in the work. He he took the steps to do it legally, and when the gavel came down, He could say to you, welcome my child. It has been done. You belong to me now, forever and always. It's not the only place that talks about adoption. In fact, 
Paul does something very similar in Romans 8. And if you haven't picked up on some of the themes yet, you know, Romans is basically just an expansion of the book of Galatians. It's written by the same author, Paul, about 10 years later. Almost every passage in Galatians, other than the really particular stuff to the people, it's all expanded upon in Romans. So everything in Galatians kind of has a a mirror passage. If you dork out on stuff like that, you're like me. The mirror passage to this one is Romans 8. I mean, just hear all these parallels. Verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves that you may live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. Now, if we are His children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And so you get all the same language of the exodus of slavery and redemption. We are given the Holy Spirit who brings about our adoption and and testifies that it's official. We cry out this phrase, Abba, Father, and I'll I'll say more on that in a moment, but it says we're also made heirs or or simply sons. And the, the NIV keeps the word sons there instead of saying sons and daughters because it's meant to remind us of the, the place of the firstborn son. In the ancient world, only the firstborn son received the full inheritance. And God is saying, that is what you are. You're not like brought into this big family as like the last one and whatever the leftovers are, that's what you get. He's saying, you are the firstborn son, the heir of everything we have. All this is to say that God has drawn you close. He has brought you back. He has crowned you with every bit of his inheritance and he has given you his very own Holy Spirit as a promise of all the good that he has for you throughout the future. It's, it's a future gift given in to the very present moment. That's the Holy Spirit. And so how on earth do we respond to all this? I mean, If you're like me, you're beginning to feel overwhelmed with gratitude and praise and like some relief and and joy. And the response is that we get to live a new kind of life. That's the third thing. God offers us a life of belovedness. Again, verse 6 says, Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. And then back to Romans 8, 15, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Isn't it interesting that both of these passages lead us to this old Aramaic phrase of Abba. You know, Abba was, was this Aramaic word that was a spoken language in first century Israel. Hebrew was, was the written language. And so the The writers of the New Testament, they took Jesus' words from Aramaic and then they wrote them down in Greek and then we translate them into English. But in English, in Greek, in the written Hebrew, there is not a word like Abba. It's the reason it just gets left as Abba in each of these passages. And in fact, the use of Abba in Galatians and and in Romans, it's meant to draw us back to to the major instance of this word, which was in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, it's Jesus' last night before his death. He's washed his disciples' feet. They've enjoyed the Last Supper together, and then he leads them out around midnight to the garden. And just before his death, he, he prays and he prays, and he wants his friends just to stay up with him, if you remember the moment. And yet they keep falling asleep. Three times he's praying, they fall asleep. 
I mean, by the way, what does it say about Jesus that in the moments before his crucifixion, he just wanted his friends with him? And then by the way, number two, what does it say to us that so often we just want people to be with us in the depth of our pain? We just want our you know, our spouse, our friends, our mentors to enter fully with us into the garden, and yet there are times when we have to go alone so that we can be made to, to depend on the presence of the Father alone. But Jesus is on his knees, alone, in the middle of the night, weeping, even sweating blood, and he's praying, Abba, Father. Now, Abba, it's, it's, it's a word that was used by the youngest of children when they couldn't form complete words yet. It's literally just the first word of a child that, that comes babbling out because everything else is too complex. It's one of the brutal things about parenting. Like my wife carried our children for nine months, went through childbirth, raised them for, you know, for months and months. She's home with them all day, taking care of them. And then I like show up 30 minutes late from work and they're like, dad, dad, first word. It's totally unfair. And I'm like, that sounds about right. But it's easier, it's just easier to say the D's than the M's, I'm told. I don't know. And in the same way, Abba, it's just the first word that can come out of a child. And so at the very beginning, in the instance of life, when our, our minds and bodies are still developing, Abba is what we can say. At the end of our lives, when our bodies and our minds are failing us, Abba is all we can pour out. And so in the same way that God is our Alpha and our Omega, the beginning and the end, He is also our Abba at the beginning, our Abba at the end, but everywhere in between, He is still simply our Abba. He is always our Father. And if we can get this into our hearts, it'll change everything for us. You might say, well, I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm a child of God. I I'm just trying to clean up my life in a few areas. If you could just give me some next steps, tell me what to do. But I want to I suggest from my own life and from, from a few years of ministry that the average Christian lives not under the spirit of adoption, but with the heart of an orphan. I've spoken before on, on abiding in Christ versus a, a phrase that we use called performative spirituality, which is a, a performance-based religion and lifestyle trying to, to gain the approval of God and other people. And there's so much overlap between that and the heart and the mindset of an orphan. And so I, I made this, this little chart. Some of this you've seen before. Some comes from John Tyson. Some comes from Jack Miller. Most of it just comes from my own experience of struggling with this orphan's heart. But the orphan is the one who says, God is my master, he's my Lord, he's my savior, I, I serve and follow him. It's good. But the child says, God is my father. I love him and I'm loved by him. The orphan can say, I, I am what I do, I am how others see me, but the child says, I am a beloved son or daughter of God. The orphan's heart thinks God just wants me to do better. But the child's heart knows God delights in me and sings over me. The orphan's heart lives to be seen by others and craves approval and is jealous and competitive. But the child trusts that the eyes of the Lord are on his children and can focus on, on loving and serving others. The orphan is easily defensive or combative, focusing only on right and wrong, easily angered and hurt. 
and yet the child can show grace and restore others. She's teachable and open and grateful and resilient. The orphan's heart seeks positions of power and influence and honor. All of these safety schemes that we come up with to tell ourselves, I am okay, I am good. But the child's heart is content just to be with Jesus, to serve where needed. The orphan often is present to others as conditional and distant, but the child is present to others as close and intimate. The orphan seeks comfort in busyness, addiction, distraction, even religion. But the child finds comfort in the father's presence and love, in the safe presence of good friends and community. The orphan's always in a hurry, struggling to rest, but the child is rarely in a hurry and can work from rest. When it comes to prayer, the orphan says, I know I should be praying more. But the child can say prayer is a, is a joy, a source of strength and renewal because of how much we just need that interaction with our father. And for the orphan's heart, suffering causes anger and bitterness. But for the child's heart, suffering is an opportunity to trust the Father and walk with Him more deeply. And so the question becomes, how do we get this child's heart within us? How do we have our minds transformed from the, from the heart of an orphan to the heart of a child? And I'm afraid so many times we can see the orphan's heart within us and yet still continue to choose it because we know that it, it works. We know that it's kind of gotten us this point. You can say, man, this orphan's heart, it's gotten me into a good college. It got me a good job. It got me status and approval. Everything I have is because I've worked for it and needed to earn it and proven myself like the orphan's heart is kind of working for me. And it, and it does for a while. It often does for the first half of life. But even there, it's, it's still, there's still something missing, right? You still see it in yourself, and so you can ask yourself, how is it actually working for me, for you and for the lives of those closest to you? You can ask as well, how does this play out? How does this trajectory lead me in the decades that follow? So often we want God as our, our Lord and our Savior, you know, our Master. We hear that all the time, like you don't want Jesus just as your Savior. You need Him as Lord over your life, and that's true. I heard my friend, a pastor, John Stark, say this past week, we don't need God just as our Lord and Savior. We need Him as our satisfaction. How often do we go to God for forgiveness, and yet we go to the world for everything else? Or we go to the world, or we go to, the, we go to God for, for eternal life and that future life, and yet we go looking in all the wrong places for, for life here and now. We think, I know God accepts me, but I'm going to have to figure it out on my own if I'm going to find happiness and peace in this life. But the orphan's heart, it's never satisfied. It's always searching, always longing, always looking for the next thing because it was made to find its father. And nothing else will fill that void. Nothing else will satisfy that craving or put an end to all the, the madness of the searching. J.I. Packer wrote that at every moment the Christians should say, both in waking up in the morning, going to bed at night, everything in between, the, the Christians should learn to say, I am a child of God. God 
is my father and heaven is my home. So think about that. You are a child of God. God is your father. You can personalize it. You have everything you need. For me, God is my father. I am his child. I have everything that I need. I am satisfied in him. I don't know if you've seen these videos on YouTube, but they, they get me every time. I'm, I, I used to joke that I was tragically born without emotions. I think it's because my dad's a dentist. My mom's like a cancer nurse. I'm starting to get some emotions later in life. This is how I know I have emotions. You know those YouTube videos where it's like, you know, a kid throws out the first pitch of the baseball game and it's like military day. His dad's been off at war for three years, so they let him throw out the pitch. And then the catcher catches it and he runs forward takes off the mask and it's dad. <sighs> like if I've got dust in my eyes, you know, it's like you can either cut onions or you can watch one of these videos and just kind of cleanse them a little bit. The one that gets me even more, it's a foster child sitting with the foster dad and mom. And they have a gift laid out and, you know, kind of like the hidden camera. But the child opens up the box and it's like a framed legal document. And she says, what is this? What does this say? And they said, it means you belong to us now. And she begins to just weep and embrace them and they hold one another. Dude, every time. That is exactly what Christianity is. It's the Father on your side. It's the Son on your side. It's the Spirit over you saying, you belong to me now. You have a home now. You're no longer an orphan, but you are ours. The Father says, I have wanted you from the very beginning. The Son says, you have no idea how much it cost. The Spirit says, I will be with you forever and never will you be alone again. See, God is our good and loving Father. He has done all of the work to prepare our adoption Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. He was forsaken on the cross so that we might be adopted instead. When the gavel came down, it came down on his body on the cross. And he said, it is finished. It's, it's objective. It's done. And in his resurrection, he is also our hope. He's our, our big brother, our advocate. And the Spirit shows up in all of these passages as our abiding presence as our source of renewal and empowerment in life. It says the Spirit brings about our adoption, and He's the one that turns the orphan's heart into the heart of the child. That little orphan's heart aching to be welcomed in, it gets transformed into belovedness. And so God is saying to you, I have all that I need. I don't need slaves. I don't need servants. I don't need law-abiding citizens, but I want children. Doesn't need pastors, doesn't need ministry leaders, doesn't need people who have it all pulled together and figured out. Just wants children. So maybe as we close, would you put your hand on your heart and close your eyes and just say, God, you are my father. You can actually say it out loud if you will. God, you are my father. I'm your beloved child. Your love is better than life. I have all that I need in you.
Father God, how much we need your presence and your love to come into our orphans' hearts like a wrecking ball, to, to, to blow up those old things, but also to, to, to come like a surgeon's scalpel and peel away what's not needed and then bind up what's broken. Lord, how many of us need healing from this spirit of, of orphanness? We pray that you would release this spirit of adoption into our midst, the spirit of sonship. Help us to know and to believe and to actually feel and live into the fact that we are sons and daughters of yours. Let us feel the love, the mercy, the tenderness, the peace that you are for us. It's so easy for me to to read this and to think this and think this is great for other people, but man, maybe every one of us is thinking that. I know somebody who needs this message, but, but I need this message. Every single one of us needs this message. Lord, that, that outer shell of the orphan's heart that, that maybe helped us get through childhood and helped us grow up a little bit and it protected us from harm, it now just harms us and we need to let it go. We need to let it dissolve so that the child's heart can lead us again. How amazing it is, it is that you say, let the little children come to me, and if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must become like a little child. And so, Lord, let us say yes to you. Let us say yes to your Son, yes to the work of your Spirit. Let us see and know and feel that we have all that we need in you, and the world adds nothing to what you are and what you give. Father God, we thank you. We thank you and we thank you and we thank you for who you are for us. We love you, Lord, and pray this in your son's name. Amen.